Our scripture text this morning is from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 36. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's a great comfort to me uh, to to read uh, again this passage and to see uh, your provision for servants of yours who are totally inadequate in themselves to the ministry that you appoint uh, them for. Because the cupboards of my heart are bare. Uh, I have far less than five loaves and two fish. And, and you have called me now to give uh, these people of yours something to eat. And I don't have any food to give them of my own. And so I am just so encouraged when I hear you say to the disciples, 
bring your inadequate loaves and fishes to me and I will feed them. So Lord, I do that by faith now and I do it with a sense of anticipation and gratitude that you will come to us now just as you came to the disciples and that you will do that so that you will be known more clearly, so that you might be worshipped. And we might say, every heart in this place might say to you, from overflowing and without any reluctance, but just joy, overflowing, truly you are the Son of God. And that there might even be others today who in your mercy, too weak to do anything except touch the fringe, of your garment by faith this morning, whom you might be willing to heal and to save. So we ask great things of you, and we expect great things of you because of what you've shown us already. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we are um, looking this week, and we'll do it next week. I originally planned, I told Amy and Claudia when we were planning for worship, I said, oh, we can do both these episodes in one week. Hardy, har, har. Uh, these are two of, and they know better by now. I don't. I'm the only one who, who has to figure this out. But these are two of the most well-known uh, miracles uh, of our Lord Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, which, other than the resurrection, is the only miracle of the Lord Jesus that is in all four Gospels. It's very important. And then the second uh, miracle, which is his uh, walking to the water, walking on the water to the disciples in the boat after he sent them out uh, by themselves at the beginning of the evening. He comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. And so they're out there for probably about nine hours by themselves. Now these are uh, two of the most familiar of Jesus's miracles, and it's important to recognize that they are in fact miracle stories, but they're not just miracle stories, they're ministry stories. Okay, and that's the thesis uh, I'm going to uh, work out, uh, Lord willing, over the next couple weeks. Mir- miracle stories. These miracle stories are not just wow stories. Uh, certainly they, they show and confirm Jesus' identity. But they are also, what's interesting about them, is they are windows into, number one, Jesus' ministry for us and the ministry that he means to have through us. So they are equipping stories. They are stories, episodes, events through which Jesus equips us, his people, for ministry uh, by showing us his ministry for us. And this connection between miracles and ministry needs to be made more often because let's be honest, friends, All gospel ministry, and when I say gospel ministry, I'm not just talking about what I'm doing as a pastor. I'm talking about all ministry that any Christian engages in, all ministry, by definition, is miraculous. I wonder if you believe that. There is no way that any gospel ministry proceeds or succeeds truly except by the supernatural and miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Oh, how much we trust and rely on our flesh. Ministry 
is supernatural and miraculous. This is a book, right? These are words. And yet this is totally unlike any other book. God says that every word of his out of this book is supernaturally inspired, breathed out by him. And that every single aspect of his word will necessarily and unfailingly succeed. That's supernatural. That's miraculous. That anyone, that any sinner could ever come to faith in Jesus Christ is not by the power or the will of men. It is by the power and will of God. That is miraculous. Christian, if you are sitting here this morning and you are alive and you are understanding me, you need to know about yourself that you are a miracle. A miracle of Jesus Christ. And every aspect and facet of ministry, not only of Jesus' ministry for us, but of every, every aspect of his ministry through us as his people, it's all miraculous. And so we need to, we need help through these stories and other places for this connection to be reinforced in our lives over and over and over again. We are so used to doing things that are within the range of our own power. And actually, as John Owen points out in the reflection quote, measuring, actually assuming that we know how to measure our, what our duties are from Christ according to what our abilities are. We, we, we think there's no way God would ever call me to the mission field because I don't know how to speak languages. Wrong. There's no way God would ever uh, call me to minister to my gay neighbors because I don't have the foggiest idea what to say to them. Wrong. It's not about our abilities. Okay? Our responsibility. Ministry in Jesus' name may be within our reach as a matter of our responsibility without being within our reach as a matter of our ability. Because it's all miraculous, friends. And the foundation for all of Jesus' ministry through us, which we'll look at next week, the foundation is where I want to begin this week, which is Jesus' ministry for us. And these two, we're going to see, are irreversible and, excuse me, they're inseparable. They always go together. And they're irreversible. You don't, you don't do ministry for Jesus in order for him to do ministry for you. That's not how it works. That's not the gospel. Okay, so this morning, all I want to do with you is just think about the Master's Ministry Part 1. What do we learn from this passage, these two episodes, uh, about Jesus' ministry for us? And, and we need to begin just marveling, right? Just absolutely marveling. All gospel ministry begins at an amazing source, a wonderful source. All gospel ministry flows out of this source, and it is a beautiful source, and that source is Jesus' ministry for us. 
and it is right to marvel again. These two episodes, I think, give us the opportunity to look into the heart of the gospel again and to be amazed again by what it is that the Son of God has come and done for us, who he has made himself for us. And I want to look at two pillars with you this morning of Jesus' ministry for us. First of all, his ministry for us is the ministry of a man for men, his full humanity. And then secondly, we're going to look from our passage at how Jesus' ministry is the ministry of God for men, his full deity. And the gospel is utterly dependent upon both. Let's think first about Jesus' full humanity, a man for men. Uh, Friends, this is very important to have clear. Uh, You've heard me say this in other contexts before, but some of you may not have. You may be visiting today, and I want you to hear this because it is utterly critical to to the gospel, right? This This is utterly essential. The gospel's power depends absolutely upon Jesus Christ's full humanity, And there is no room for appearances, there is no room for approximations, there is no room for caricatures, unless Jesus Christ was and is a man for men, there is no possibility of salvation for men. There is no gospel. We need a Savior who was and is a man. Because our needs before God are the needs of men. They're the needs of human beings that we cannot answer in in our own stead. Right? We need need a Savior. We need a Redeemer who is one of us so that he can give to God the life that God deserves from his image bearers to live worshiping, obeying, with no interruption, no hiatus, with perfect conformity to God's law in every respect, to fulfill. We need a man to fulfill God's design for men. None of us can fulfill that design. None of us has filled that design. None of us ever will in ourselves fulfill that design. We need a Savior who is a man for men, who is fully human. We need him also to be fully human in order to bear in our place the the justice of God against our sin. You see, somebody's going to have to answer for my sins. In the universe that God has made, presided over by God who is holy, who is just. He does not, cannot be true to himself and sweep the sin of men under the rug of the universe. It would detract from, it would be an aspersion upon his own holiness. So somewhere there's going to have to be perfect, not approximate justice, but there's going to have to be perfect justice. A man is going to have to answer for the sins of men. If I were put to the place of having to answer for my sins committed against an infinitely 
glorious God, I, in my finitude, could not sustain the burden of God's justice. So I need a man who can. And Jesus did. As a man. And I also need, we also need a Savior who's fully man in order to represent us before God. One of us being a true mediator. And our passage, there's no room for, there's no room for caricatures. There is no wiggle room on this, friends. And the Bible, this isn't just a matter of logic. This is a matter of Scripture. Okay, the Bible gives us no room to wiggle out of uh, the full human, the necessity, I want to say it that way, the necessity of Jesus' full humanity to the gospel. This is not just a sidelight in the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. And our passage gives us, uh, really, well, debunks two very prevalent misunderstandings or caricatures of Jesus' humanity. And one is from the disciples themselves. You know, let's start at the back of the passage. When the disciples see a figure uh, walking on the sea in the midst of a storm with the wind high and it's at night, notice that they all draw the same conclusion. Verse 26. It is a ghost. Now, why would that be their conclusion? Well, this isn't hard to think through, right? They see somebody who looks sort of in the shape of a man out there in the middle of the lake, walking on the water. Men don't do that. Right? That would require a supernatural, miraculous power that ordinary men do not possess. Now, what's a ghost? A ghost is something. It's a supernatural being that has the appearance of a human being, has the outline of a human being, has the silhouette of a human being, but isn't a real human being, doesn't have the substance of a human being. That's what the disciples think because they, they don't have a category for somebody who is really a man, fully a man walking on the water. And notice what Jesus does. He immediately proves to them that he is not a ghost, that he is the man that they have known. And he does that by his voice. They recognize that it is him. He does it with his hand as he lays hold of Peter with a hand. He does it when he enters the boat with them. He is a man, not a ghost. Jesus is not just the appearance of a man. He's not just the silhouette of a human being. Friends, this is a very common misunderstanding that Jesus just, and across church history, that Jesus just was uh, essentially the, the outward husk, if you will, of a human being. That's not what this story, that's not what this story presents to us. And same with the feeding of the 5,000, right? The real hands broke the loaves. Real hands touched 
and felt. But there's another extreme, right? There's another caricature of Jesus' humanity. He's not just, an appear, he's not just the appearance of a human being, but nor, the, the other extreme is he's not the, the man of steel. He's not a man of steel. I'm sorry, Superman's on my mind. Um, I want you to take another uh, careful look at verse 13. This is important. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What's going on there? Well, that obviously connects the this that he heard is the report that he received in verse 12. And we read that last week from John the Baptist's disciples who come to Jesus after John is martyred. And they bring Jesus the news that John has been martyred. Now, when Jesus, now notice this, friends. When Jesus hears this news, this is very important to understand the kind of human being that Jesus isn't and the kind that he is. He isn't a human being who is different from us, like some kind of super class human being. No, the kind of human being that Jesus is, the kind of man he is, is a man like you and me. How does verse 13 show us that? Well, let me, let me explain a little further. Notice that when Jesus gets the news, receives the news of John's martyrdom, he decides to withdraw. Why? Why? Well, think about it. He withdrew because he was endangered. Back in chapter 4, when John is first imprisoned, Jesus withdraws. He's a man, friends. He's endangered. If John the Baptist could be murdered by Herod, then how much more? John the Baptist was just the forerunner. Then how much more is Jesus potentially vulnerable to Herod incarcerating him and executing him? Jesus is in danger. I'm not saying that Jesus is afraid. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that one of the reasons he withdrew, I think there are multiple layers to this, but this is important to see. He did what a man would do who knew that he still had work to accomplish. He didn't say, come on, bring it on, Herod. He didn't do that. If he did that, he'd be an avenger, right? He'd be a superhero. That's not a man. If the gospel was about Jesus as a superhero, guess what? That ain't good news for any of us. No, he's a man. He, he withdraws because he's in danger. Number two, I think he draw, withdraws because he's grieving. John the Baptist was his relative. He loved John. Uh, he's also, I think, sobered about the cost of his own ministry. That's why Jesus withdraws. He does and feels what a man would do and feel in this situation. If, Herod, if, if, if John the Baptist right, is beheaded and martyred, right, Jesus knows that the reaction against him for his ministry, John is just a forerunner who's preparing the way of the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord himself who has come, and he knows that his ministry, has a, that, that the Father has appointed for him, and that he has embraced is the ministry of the suffering servant. This is a sobering thing. Now, if he were 
Teflon and couldn't be injured, he wouldn't be sobered, he wouldn't be endangered, and he wouldn't be grieving. But many of us, when it comes to Jesus' humanity, we operate with what I call a functional Clark Kent Christology. You know, Clark Kent is really Superman's alias, right? Uh, Clark Kent looks like a human being. Clark Kent talks like a human being. But Clark Kent is not a human being. Clark Kent's humanity, he wears it as a disguise. But it's not real. He had the appearance of a man, but his nature as somebody who was from Krypton prevented him from being vulnerable as a man. Right? And that's, that's really the key thing that I want you to, to see in Jesus' decision to withdraw in verse 13. What, what, his withdrawal show, what his withdrawal shows us is that Jesus was vulnerable in that situation in the same way that a man would be. But Clark Kent, because he doesn't share a human nature, is never going to understand what vulnerability as a human being means. Never. Can't do it. It's not a matter of his willingness. It's a matter of his ability because he doesn't share our nature. Nor can he ever know what it means to be endangered in the way that a human being is. Clark Kent can have a train hit him, and the train will lose. That's not like your humanity or mine. Nor can Clark Kent ever wrestle as a man would wrestle or grieve as a man would grieve. But Jesus' humanity, friends, is not and was not a disguise. It was a humanity down to the roots. And Jesus could be harmed. And he could be endangered. And because he could be, because he was vulnerable, then he was able to experience temptation as you and I experience temptation, yet without sin. He experienced temptation as we do in all things, the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, because he was vulnerable as a human being, is vulnerable. He was exposed, his will was exposed to temptation in the way that yours and mine are exposed to temptation. The difference between Jesus and us is not that he was not tempted, but that he did not concede to temptation. He fought it, he triumphed over it, but he felt it. And in fact, he felt it more strongly than any of us ever have because we give in down here. He never gave in. He knows what it's like to be human even more than we do. And because he was fully a man and his humanity wasn't disguised, he was perfectly qualified then to be our substitute at Calvary to bear our sins. Here at last was the answer to God, the perfect answer to God's perfect justice, a man taking upon himself the sins of men and bearing in his own body the weight of God's just curse against the sins of men. We have perfect justice. 
and God's righteousness is upheld at the same time that his love is upheld in saving sinners. In Jesus Christ's full humanity, God judges sinners righteously and saves sinners and loves sinners triumphantly because Jesus is a man. The gospel is totally amazing. Think about it. If Jesus was nothing more than the silhouette and outline of a man, the most that he could do is to instruct us in the way of salvation. That's the most that he could do. If he was just a a holy ghost, if you will, forgive me, if he was just a holy apparition who came down and who spoke truth, all he could do, his ministry would be no greater than instructing us in the way of salvation. But because Jesus was fully man, that means that he could be the way of salvation for us. The gospel is wonderful. But notice as well in this passage that Jesus' ministry is not just the ministry of a man for men, but it is also the ministry of God for men. And the gospel's power, friends, depends just as much on Jesus' full deity as it does on his full full humanity. And once again, there is no room... There is no room for caricature. There is no room for approximation. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a powerful prophet. He's not just a great miracle worker. So common to caricature Jesus in those ways. That's what Islam does. Islam just says that Jesus is a a great prophet. Not good enough. No gospel if Jesus is just a prophet. No, there is no room for caricature. If Jesus Christ wasn't and isn't God for men, there is no possibility of salvation for men. We need a Redeemer who is God himself. We need a Redeemer who's God himself in order to to give eternal worth to the life that this Man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, lived for his obedience to be as perfect as it would have to be in order to satisfy the the God who is holy, holy, holy. No one but God can satisfy his own holiness. Friends, we needed a Redeemer who is fully God so that under the weight of God's eternal wrath against our sin, he would not sink into oblivion. You see, the perfect life that would qualify the sacrifice requires that the Redeemer be God. The triumphant death that that would absorb the wrath and then rise in resurrection, all those things. Think about this. Resurrection after the infinite wrath of God had been poured out upon him. No mere human or great prophet would be good enough for that. Only God himself could pass through his wrath into resurrection. And, and what we see 
is in this passage is that Jesus demonstrates his deity unmistakably in several ways. Who else but the Lord of hosts, Yahweh himself, could provide bread for his people in a desolate place? I mean, we're supposed to, the reason, I think the reason that miracle is in all four Gospels is because what is the center of Israel's wilderness experience is that God brought bread from heaven for 40 years. He fed Israel in the wilderness. He stood as the provider of, of Israel's needs in the desolate place. And the word that's used for desolate place here is the same word that's used to describe the wilderness into which Jesus goes in the temptation. Very deliberate echoes on the part of Matthew and the Holy Spirit. Who else but Yahweh would do that? Who else but Yahweh would create a feast for his people in the midst of the wilderness? Who else but the Lord himself would walk on water? To be with his people, just like uh, Psalm 77 uh, reflects on the, the crossing of the Red Sea. The psalmist says, your way was in the sea. Only God triumphs over the chaos of the sea. Who but Yahweh himself would say to the disciples, it is I. When he comes, see, Jesus very deliberately wants his disciples to, you know, whose ears have been trained by the Old Testament, right? He wants his disciples to hear him say, when he says, it is I, it doesn't come through in the English, but in the original, what Jesus is saying is he says, fear not or take courage, it, take courage, I am, I am. Now, if your ears have been trained by the Old Testament, you know, and you see this figure who says, I am walking on the waves. And this is the same figure who just fed people bread in the wilderness. Well, the conclusion is obvious that Jesus means for his disciples and for us to draw. It's that he is fully God. Friends, the gospel brings us the good news, not just of the climactic and triumphant ministry of a man for men, but also the triumph and the climactic ministry of God for men. God is doing for us in Jesus Christ what we could never do for ourselves. Think about Romans 1, 16 and 17. We love those verses. What it, why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of what? God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel depends totally upon the power of God. There is no gospel unless God's power is at the heart of the gospel. And how is the power of God manifested? How is it released? How is it demonstrated in the gospel? How is it revealed in the gospel? For in it, this gospel that has the power to save everyone who believes, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their spiritual history, this gospel only has the power to save because it is the power of God. And this gospel has the power to save because in it the righteousness of whom? God is revealed. 
Without Jesus' full deity, there is no possibility of salvation. And Jesus is showing both. These are the pillars. And what I want you to see, this is an amazing thing about the gospel, about Jesus. There is a vulnerability in his humanity which is just like ours. And there is an invincibility because he is God. But notice, it's not one without the other. You have a vulnerable invincibility in Jesus Christ. His triumph is not apart from suffering. He triumphs. He's invincible. Jesus wins at the end of the book, right? I mean, we'll just just jump to the end of the book. Jesus wins because Jesus won. This is what's so amazing. He's invincible through his vulnerability, not in spite of it. I was reminded of this uh, even this morning as I was looking at Isaiah 55 in my devotions. I wonder if you'd turn with me there. You know, I actually had a whole other section of this sermon. And uh, I wrestled with this message all week long. I couldn't figure out the organization of this message. It was a... I, you go ahead, keep your violins in the case. Don't worry. Just pray for me every week, okay? But I just really, really wrestled all week long. I, I spent so much time telling the Lord... I don't even have five loaves and two fish. I don't understand this. And I kept hearing him say, you've got to give them something to eat. I've appointed you to give them something to eat. And so I kept saying, okay, I'm bringing my inadequacy to you. I'm bringing it to you. Here it is again. Here it is again. Uh, could you help me? And I, I understood this morning when I got to Isaiah 55 in my devotions why the Lord had, uh, had led me on the path that he's led me this week. It's because there was there was a, a different path that I needed to take in this part of the sermon. And that path is in Isaiah 55. So I'm doing this by faith right now. Um, and I believe that it connects. I'm doing it because I, I, I believe there's a very strong connection between these themes of Jesus' full humanity and his full deity, that we see the DNA. We, in Isaiah 55, we see the, the DNA of the gospel on display, the heart of God. You know, this, this, this full humanity, full deity, this vulnerability and invincibility, these are not innovations when we get to the New Testament. This is how God is always disclosing himself uh, throughout the scriptures. So turn with me, Isaiah 55, it's page uh, 615 in your pew Bible. If you come with me to verse 6, and, and, and I'm just going to read down through verse 9, and then I'm going to uh, hopefully walk you through some, some connection points with our text so you can see, hopefully from this vantage point, the beauty of the gospel yet again. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near. And you wonder who's, who's he talking to? Is he talking to good people or bad people? Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. He's talking to wicked people. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For, and now God is speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways 
higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What, this, what th- these uh, four verses uh, reminded me of, again, is the very same lesson that our passage from Matthew 14 uh, sets before us. And that is that God's covenant, God's dealings with his people, depends upon the, these pillars of God's imminence, immanence, not imminence like it's going to happen right away, but immanence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, which has to do with God's nearness, his closeness, and that, that can be both in a, a nearness to be able to help, but also in his identification with us by his compassion, how God's dealings with his people and for his people, how redemption, how the gospel itself depends first upon God's immanence with his people, and secondly, uh, upon his transcendence, his difference from us. There's a, transcendence is about distance, but it's not the distance of space. It's the distance of difference. Like there's a massive difference between God and us. We don't think about that enough, but man, that larger catechism question should help us to, <laughs> to prime the pump. God is so different from us. And the gospel depends upon both these things. And I think God's imminence, his presence, his nearness to us, that corresponds to Jesus' humanity. And his transcendence, his distance, his difference from us, that corresponds to his deity. And what happens in the person of Jesus Christ is that these things are not in tension with each other. They are married and joined together. There's a confluence in the person and work of Christ that brings these things together and unleashes their glory for the salvation of sinners and the glory of God. Now, let me walk you through God's imminence and what I mean by it. Look at verse 6. This is, this is not hard, okay? So just bear with me. This is just, again, what, what we're doing now is we're just reading the Bible slowly, okay? I just commend slow Bible reading to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now think about that. God is near enough to be found by men. He's present. And then verse 7 is the implication, if you will, of his imminence. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. See, if you think that God is only transcendent, you think that the details of your life don't matter to him, and that you're not accountable to him, and that at best he's an absentee landlord, and so what you do with your life doesn't matter. But because he's immanent, because he's right here, because he's more inside, he's closer to us than we are to ourselves then our lives matter. And the implication of God's imminence in verse 7 is repentance, right? The first implication, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, because God is right here. This is not a joke. This is not a theory. This is not a legend. This is a myth. You are living in the presence of the living God. So repent. 
He knows our plight. He knows our plight. But not only does he know our plight, he's close enough to know it, he's close enough to know the particulars, but that also means that he's close enough to rescue us. See the second half of verse 7? Let him return to the Lord. See, verse 7 is turn away, turn away from your sin, turn away from your living in sin, turn away from your unrighteous thoughts. It's not just what you do. It's how you think about things. Turn away from that and turn toward God. Let him return to the Lord. Why in the world would you do that if you're a sinner? I mean, goodness gracious, is that not the most dangerous turn you could ever make? If you're a wicked person... If you're an unrighteous person, how in the world could you ever think that you should turn toward God? Isn't the safe thing to do to keep turning away from him and going the opposite direction? The gospel proves that exactly the opposite is the case. The safest thing for a sinner to do is to turn toward God. Because in his immanence... He is there and ready to rescue us that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is willing to rescue the sinner. It's his immanence. The fact that Jesus Christ is fully human, is a man for men, friends, that should show you how willing God is is to pardon you no matter what your history. Think about what's involved in the incarnation. God moved heaven to earth. The, the One of the members of the Trinity was enclosed within a virgin's womb, grew up under the authority of sinners, was not was not recognized in the world that he had made, lived not as a prince but as a pauper, was misunderstood, obeyed God's law perfectly, quietly, bearing the burden all of his life, knowing that his obedience, the the end of his obedience, was going to lead him to a cross where he would bear the sin for all the disobedience that he never committed. Oh, the incarnation's a big deal. God's imminence in Jesus Christ demonstrates God's willingness to rescue. You see how beautiful that is? Oh, it's amazing to me. God isn't like any of our stereotypes. He's far more beautiful. God has compassion His compassion is his connection, the connection that his immanence, that he makes in his immanence with our need and our plight. God is connected with our need and our plight. And the greatest proof of that, of course, is the incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ. If all God wanted to do was to judge the sins of men, the incarnation was not necessary. John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Didn't have to send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. He sent his son into the world in the incarnation so that the world might be saved through him. That's God's heart. That's the power of his eminence. That's the relevance of it. Amazing. What kind of heart does God have? Wonderful. That's the short answer.
Now, let's go to God's transcendence in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God, now, now this, because, because verse 7 is so shocking, right? God's going to forgive and pardon and show compassion toward a great sinner. The very next logical thought is, God says, that's not the way you guys think. My ways are way higher than your ways. My thoughts are way higher than your thoughts. I am so unlike you in the logic of my heart. I'm higher than you. And friends, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we, we come to this, this uh, message about uh, Jesus' ministry as fully human and fully God, a man for men and God for men. And we say, that, that is so vast. And it is because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This God thinks things and plans things and desires and designs things that have never entered our minds. Our minds can't imagine the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the highest thought ever disclosed to men. And it is one of the reasons that I believe the gospel is that men would never, could never invent it. God's thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. This God of the gospel does things and accomplishes things that the strivings and the efforts of men could and would never do and never accomplish and in ways and by means that we as men would never choose, we would never elect to humiliate ourselves to step so low as God himself was willing to do in Jesus' ministry. No, friends, God's ways are higher than our ways, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest accomplishment ever witnessed by men. This is the wonder of the gospel, that God's compassion for sinners and God's holiness meet together in this ministry. His transcendence and his imminence are married in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he acts for sinners to save them. I know of no higher thought than that. I know of no greater deed in history than that. And it is all because of all that, that imminence and transcendence, they are fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're not in tension with one another. So what's the goal of all of this? Well, the goal is worship. The goal of Jesus' ministry for us. You see, I, I, I labored that in, in Isaiah 55 because I want you to see that the gospel is on every page. The DNA of the gospel is from Genesis 1 all the way through. It's God's fixation from the beginning of Revelation in Genesis So that's the ministry of Jesus for us. What is the goal of Jesus' ministry for us? It's just this, quite simply. It's worship. It's worship, and there's two. This is in closing. So what I want you to do is turn back with me to Matthew 14. I want you to see this, because there there are two examples of worship, two two aspects of worship that are relevant to 100% of the people in this room, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. The, the fruit, the goal, Jesus' intended goal for his ministry is our worship. 
Look first at the disciples who represent those who are already Christians. Look at verse 33. When Jesus comes back into the boat with Peter, notice what happens. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now I want you to think about the earlier episode in the boat when the disciples were with Jesus in the storm and he was asleep in the stern of the boat. Do you remember that? That's when Jesus was with them for the whole journey. And do you remember when after Jesus had stilled the waves and the wind, do you remember what the disciples said in chapter 8? This is what they said. You can look it up this afternoon. They said this, or, or Matthew reports this, and the men marveled, not worshiped, marveled saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and seas obey him. That's not a profession of faith. That's not a confession. That's a question, not a commitment. And yet here, four chapters, I can't even count, six chapters later, sorry. Six chapters later, there's, there's progress, isn't there? Because now the disciples, in basically the same situation, they see Jesus act, and they say, they, they actually worship. They don't marvel. They worship and they make a profession of faith not about him, but to him. You are the Son of God. Friends, for those of you who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, you're Christians, every, this reminds us every fresh glimpse, like the disciples, every fresh glimpse you and I are given of the gospel should propel us forward, further in and higher up in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we say, even now from our hearts to him, right, sincere hearts overflowing with wonder and gratitude that he has made us his own. Truly you are the Son of God, Lord Jesus. That is the propulsion of the Christian life. But notice as well in this passage something that is very relevant for those who are not yet Jesus' disciples. And and I'm talking to our non-Christian friends and guests who are here, and, and I want to invite you, friends, to look at the very last verse in our passage, verse 36. When Jesus comes on shore with the disciples, what happens is that the folks find out that Jesus is there and they know that he's a healer. And so the word spreads without cell phones or Twitter. And folks bring the sick to him. And notice verse 36. And they implored him. It's a very strong word. They implored him that they might only touch the fringe, that's the bottom edge of his garment. And as many as touched it were made Now, I want you to think about this. Why the fringe? Why the fringe? Well, I think this is why. They were, the sick were, didn't come under their own power. They were carried there. They were brought there, the text says. And so I imagine what's happening, I think the image is this. The sick are laying down. And Jesus is walking in their midst. And all they can do All they can do is touch, reach out and touch the fringe, the bottom of his garment. You see, they don't have the strength to stand up. They don't have the strength to make an amazing theological profession of faith like the the disciples just did in the boat. 
They don't have the strength to do great works for Jesus, to get, get his attention, and then to have him heal them in response to their works. The, they only have strength for one thing. They can only do one thing. Do you know what it is? All they can do is to need him. Now, those of us who are Christians forget to our shame that that's true about us as well. All we can do, all we can do is just need him. Just need him. Just admit that you need him. Just acknowledge that you need him, that he is near. It's not enough for him to come near. It's not enough for him to be close. It's not enough for you to be in his vicinity. You have to reach out and you have to touch him. And you have to acknowledge that the only thing you can do is need him. That is the meaning of grace. There is no work, there is no achievement, there is no articulate song you can sing to him. No, friends, the only thing you can do is need him. That's the gospel. That's how sinners get saved. And do you notice this? Notice how generous this Jesus is. This Jesus who is the embodiment of God's imminence and transcendence altogether. Right, this Jesus, you touch the fringe of his garment and you're made well. Friends, my non-Christian friends, a little faith gives you a whole Christ. Not because a little faith is wonderful, but because Jesus is wonderful. You touch the fringe of his garment by faith in repentance and faith today, and you will be healed. You will be reconciled to God. You will be transformed into a child of the living God. You will be pardoned. You will be reconciled to your creator through Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, if that's a real reach, if it is an authentic touching of the fringe of Jesus' garment, here's how you'll know it was authentic, is that while that fringe may save you, that fringe of Jesus will never satisfy you. You won't be content with the fringe if you've really been saved. You will want more of him. Because if that's what happens just at the fringes, how much more should you expect of his goodness and his power and his faithfulness from the rest of the Christian life? May it ever be so for every one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you that the kingdom of heaven may be entered by the fringes and by weak faith because all any of us can ever do is just need you. Thank you.
for your great work for us and your great willingness to shed that work upon us in power. We pray in Jesus' name.